Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Daniel Erickson, founder and CEO of Viable, a customer feedback analysis platform that's raised nine million in funding. Daniel, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. I'm Dan. I'm CEO and founder here at uh, Viable. I have been in the tech industry for about 15 years now. I'm an engineer by trade and have been in, in engineering leadership roles for the past few years. So prior to this, I was the VP of engineering at Ease, CTO at Gettable, and an early engineer at Yammer. What was that like working at Ease? My mom listens to this, so I will have to pretend that I have no idea what Ease is, but uh, tell us what it was like working at a company like that. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the cannabis industry was quite a ride to be in. Uh, it is both exhilarating and chaotic. You know, when I joined Ease, it was very early on. So it was before Prop 64 even passed in, in California. So it was medical use only. And I got to see, you know, Prop 64 pass, more states pass it, uh, expanding into other states. It was a ton of work. And the first time that I got to really watch that sort of regulatory battle happen, and it was just a lot of fun to navigate. Yeah. Was that the period of time where a lot of crazy stuff happened at ease? I believe there were indictments and and things like that. Is that correct? (laughs) Uh, I can't talk too much about that. But yes, I was there for some of that. (laughs) <laughs> okay, perfect. We can uh, we can switch gears. Let's move to a few questions just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So is there a specific CEO and team that you've really studied and, and learned the most from? So I really admire Rahul Vora over at uh, Superhuman. Uh, he's actually an, an investor in Viable as well. But I love his focus on extremely good user experience. And not just from you know a sort of UI design and interaction standpoint, but even from a sort of workflow design standpoint and, you know, really pushing like at Superhuman, they really push like inbox zero as the thing that you're, that they're trying to get you to do. And they use really amazing game tactics actually to help you get there in a way that doesn't feel like they're just like gamifying it for you. So I think the biggest thing that I've taken away from him is that studying games is actually a really, really great way to understand how to build the right processes, workflows and habits into your product. Nice. I love that. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? This can be a business book or it can be a personal book that's just influenced how you think. Yeah, definitely. And this one kind of actually stretches between both of those, but might be lean a little bit more towards personal. It is James Clear's Atomic Habits, probably the most actionable nonfiction book that I've read in my life. There are just so many little little strategies to help you, you know, shed the habits that you don't want to have and pick up the habits that you do want there. And I think the key takeaway is to really focus on the smallest thing to start building the habit. So, you know, finding the right cue, finding the right response to that cue, the action that you take, and then the reward that you give yourself afterward as well. Yeah, that's up there for me in books that really transformed my life, which sounds cheesy to say, but yeah, I'd read a few other books on habits in the past, and I read that one, and it just nailed it. And then I've you know, been following his Thursday newsletters, his blog posts. He's just so good. And I really admire that he hasn't really tried to do anything else besides just sticking with Atomic Habits. You know, He hasn't branched off and written like five other books, at least from what I've seen so far. He seems like laser focused on just making this one book incredibly successful. 
Yeah, I love how laser focused he is on the habits thing specifically. Watching him actually build up that the following around that movement has been really interesting to watch. That has to be such a tough space to break through as well. I feel like the habit space, there were what, like a thousand books already. Everyone was talking about it. It's really amazing. He, he was able to rise above all that noise. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk about what you're building at Viable. So can you tell us the origin story behind the company and then just give us the high-level pitch? What are you offering to customers? Yeah, definitely. So I'll start with the origin story and then we can get into what we offer now because we actually have a little bit of a winding path to get to where we are. Um, we started as something slightly different than what we do now and we called ourselves Viable Fit. And we were actually building a turnkey product to help other startups find product market fit using a survey and then analyzing the responses to that survey to help them guide their roadmap. It actually, uh, if that sounds familiar, came from an article that Rahul Vora wrote over at Superhuman uh, <laughs> about how Superhuman measures and improves their product market fit. They send out a survey with a few questions. They then gather all of those responses, tag them with things like features and pain points that people were, were having, and then grouping those into themes that could help them understand how, to, how they needed to change their product in order to increase their product market fit. When I started to talk to them and other companies, I realized that there was a huge time suck in the manual analysis side of that process. In fact, superhuman themselves were spending about 12 hours a week just analyzing that data. So tagging the data, going through it to find all the, the similar things and analyzing from there. And then from there, we basically realized that 80% of the companies that were attempting to use this thing were actually struggling with that manual step. They just didn't have the time to do it. We also realized, however, that NLP, natural language processing, was starting to get to the point where it could rival humans at that task. So we decided to actually build that as a sort of turnkey solution to help people do that analysis without sacrificing their time to it. And I see you have GP3 on your homepage. So has your inbox just been blowing up with investor contacts in the last week? <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> every every time we get we get a new sort of wave in in AI. So like the image generation models or chat GPT, all of those end up bringing people you know, out of the woodwork and, and wanting to, to chat with us. But after sort of building up that initial product, uh, getting some funding from Craft Ventures and actually a handful of angels as well, we built up that product, launched it on Product Hunt, had over 500 companies sign up to use us. But we quickly realized that calling them companies is a bit of a stretch. There's actually not a whole lot of money to extract from pre-product market fit startups. Um, <laughs> so in hindsight, that's pretty clear. But at the same time, we started to get usage from really large companies as well that clearly already had product market fit. So we needed to figure out what exactly was driving their usage. Why, why did they need help? So we dug in and we realized 80% of data that is collected by companies today is unstructured text. It's things like survey responses and app store reviews and social media mentions and call transcripts and help desk tickets and all of those kinds of things. Basically, customers that are writing to you and about you all over the web and across a bunch of different data silos. So we quickly realized what the market really needed here was not something to help them understand product market fit, but something to help them understand their customers' needs. So we moved away from product market fit and up market into the enterprise and built an aggregation engine and analysis engine that can actually aggregate data from all of those different sources that I talked about earlier, structure it in a way that enables analysis, and then actually do true analysis on top of that data set um, in two different ways. One, we allow you to ask a question and get an answer. 
from the data set. So you can ask something as vague as what do customers love about our product? Or something as very specific as which video chat services should we integrate with our calendar invites? And all of that will be backed up by the data that you've collected from your customers. On top of that, we also offer a report. So if you know what you're looking for, question and answer is a really great way to get it. But oftentimes, you actually don't know what's in that data set, and you just need a good bird's eye view. So we built the report. What that does is it it takes a look at the entire picture of your data and does a thematic analysis on top of it. So it basically clusters your data into multiple themes. Each one of those themes then has deep analysis that is built up for that specific theme. The theme could be something along the lines of customers upset with customer support, or it could be something along the lines of customers love the onboarding videos, right? Uh, So it can be specific about some specific feature, or it can be about some process. And it's actually organically discovered from the data set itself. We don't have any sort of taxonomy we're trying to hit. All of that is actually unsupervised and learned from the data itself. And what's that sales cycle look like then? Is that still product-led growth or is this top-down enterprise sales? So right now, we're mostly top-down enterprise sales. We do have a, a few people at the low end who have, who have mostly sort of self-served in. But we're talking you know, large amounts of data here and fairly high contract sizes. So generally speaking, we're actually mostly doing enterprise sales at this point. Got it. And what's that process been like? I, I see you have some pretty amazing logos and you even have a quote from Stuart Butterfield on the site. How'd you manage to pull that off? Oh, well, to be clear, that quote from Stuart is is just a quote that he has out there and we were able to sort of pull it in uh, and go from there. I think that uh, hmm. as far as uh, like the customers there go, you know, we are working with a, a lot of those on there. Not all of those are paying customers of ours at this point, but some of them are. And generally speaking, most of our leads have come in through three different channels. The earliest ones came through our investor network. So, you know, we really did use our connections within our network in order to pull in the earliest deals, which is, I think, probably the best way to to sort of get your flywheel going. Now, once that started to get going, our next thing that we did was warm and cold outreach. So that was specifically looking at the companies that, that were working already with us, and then trying to figure out like, okay, who is the actual buyer here? Um, who are the users? What's our best way in? And then actually coming up with personalized outreach for each person that we were reaching out to, to pull them in. And then lastly, and this is the thing that's actually been working the best for us recently, is content. We are now pumping out a lot of content on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And we are posting content on, on the blog as well. That is you know, highly SEO. At this point, I think we're seeing about 50% month-over-month increase in website traffic uh, just from our content initiatives. And what team is primarily using this? Is that customer success? Is it the product team? Is it marketing? Who's using it primarily? So generally speaking, the first team that we end up working with is product. And that is because product tends to be the team that needs these insights from those other teams, right? So generally speaking, a product manager will go to the head of customer support and say, hey, what are the big things people are complaining about right now? Or they'll go over to the sales team and they'll say, hey, salespeople, what are the biggest objections you're, you're seeing in your sales conversations right now? Or they'll go over to marketing and they'll be like, hey, I know you run the NPS system. You know, are you seeing, what insights are you seeing from that? And they have to go to each one of these and they go talk to people about this. And inevitably what happens is, you know, these people are like, it's not their job to distill all of this stuff down into something that's easy for the product team to consume. So what happens is, they end up talking about the most recent thing or the loudest thing. And they don't really see the full picture. 
They're just looking at whatever you know anchor they have most recently. So we basically solved that problem for the product team. We plug directly into the data sources that those other teams use to generate those insights for them. Makes sense. And I saw on your site that you save hundreds of hours. Uh, so that's for product teams, product people. They're not cheap. So I'm guessing that really saves a lot of money in the end for these teams as well, right? It does indeed. Latch, for example, one of our customers, they were doing roughly 18 hours a week of manual analysis on this stuff before using Viable. Now they spend just a few minutes going through our analysis each week. Wow, that's amazing. That's very cool. And what about market categories? How do you think about your market category? Is customer feedback analysis the category? Is that established? Or what are your views there? I would say that our category is fairly new, actually, because prior to us, you couldn't do true analysis in an automated way. You needed a human to go in and read through everything and summarize it and you know make the mental leaps that you need to make in order to give good analysis. So text analytics has been around for a while now. It's been around since probably the mid-2000s and has mostly focused on sentiment analysis and some topic discovery. These are companies like Clarabridge, like Thematic or Idiomatic, and a, you know, a few newer ones like Interpret or Artifact. These are all focused on building dashboards around textual analytics. These are tools for analysts to use to help them analyze this data set. What's different about us is that we are actually building an analyst. We're not building tools for analysts. You know, our end user is the the business user who would normally be going to an analyst to get this information. So what we've been calling ourselves recently, and who knows, this may change in the future, uh, is experience analysis. So we are an experience analysis platform. We also are tossing around the idea of calling this generative analysis. So kind of the next step in generative AI. And when you say experience analysis, do customers know what you're talking about? Or does that require just a huge amount of education and explanation to try to get them up to speed? So oftentimes they do. And this is because experience management is a thing, right? So Qualtrics, for example, coined the term experience management. That's kind of their category. There's a bunch of people who are sort of following in on that one, but they've struggled on the analysis end. And so we're kind of piggybacking off of that for the analysis side. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And going back to you personally, what's your journey been like going from being an engineer to a founder? I have you know, spoken with a lot of founders who've had that same journey, and, and they've said it's pretty tough. You have to totally switch mindsets, different skill sets. So what's that been like for you? And, and how have you transitioned successfully to be CEO from being an engineer or VP of engineering? Yeah, definitely. So luckily, I did have sort of that transitory period from being an an individual contributor engineer coding all the time to being a founder, right? There was that period in between that was in executive positions at other companies. And I think that those really prepared me quite well for the CEO role, Mm -hmm. um, especially my time at Ease as the VP of engineering there. What's Um, been your biggest surprise, do you think, that you didn't expect as you moved into the CEO role? Oh, man. So... There's a lie that I think all founders tell themselves early on, uh, and that is, I don't have a boss. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I don't have to, I have this company so I can do what I want. And really what happens there is you can't really do what you want. Your customers are your boss, right? You actually end up not having quite as much freedom as you actually think you will, because there's just so many obvious things that you just have to do whether or not you want to do them or not. And so that was probably the the biggest thing for me was just the breadth of different things that I had to do as a founder 
that I didn't have to do in any of my previous roles. So as CEO, I kind of view it as my job to be you know, a little bit of everything. Basically, if there's something that needs to be done in the company, and I don't have somebody who's specifically like it's their job to do it, either I need to delegate that to somebody to make it their job, or I need to do it myself. Makes a lot of sense. And in terms of going to market, what would you say has been the greatest challenge you've experienced so far? So it's actually the sort of new category thing. So generally speaking, when you're going out and you're selling a, a product, if you've got the category you're selling into already, then oftentimes your customers are going to have like a budget line item for that. You're going to go in and kick out a competitor or you're going to go head to head with somebody and you're going to sort of have this bucket that you can just kind of fill yourself into. When you're creating something new and you're on sort of the forefront of what's possible, you don't have all of that sort of framework built out for you within your target customers. And so there's a lot more education that has to happen during that sales cycle in order for them to understand what it is that you're actually doing. So that's been our biggest challenge, actually, is basically showing exactly how we can help them in a way that makes it uh, sort of obvious that they need to create a new budget line for this. And I think today, every founder wants to be a category creator. That seems to be the, the aspiration, at least that a lot of founders have that I speak to. I think the downside of that, of course, as you just mentioned, is it's hard and then it's expensive and it, it takes a long time. So when you were speaking with investors about this idea of category creation, was it difficult to get their buy-in and support or did they get it right away? So it entirely depends on the investor. There are certain investors out there that are looking for category creators because category creators tend to be, if not winner take all, winner take most for these things. So you know, if you're a very early stage investor, then you actually should be looking for those category creators because those are the ones that are going to get huge. However, there's a lot of companies, there, there's a lot of funds out there that are looking for uh, more what I would call sort of tried and true go to market. And if that's the case, then, you know, as a category creator, you're going to have headwinds, you know, talking to that specific subset of investors. But for example, like Craft Ventures, David Sachs, like David is all about category creation. So there are definitely investors out there that are that are very much for it. And you just have to figure out which ones of those, you know, you're going to resonate with. Makes a lot of sense. And last question here for you, if we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for Viable? Definitely. So I've hinted at this concept of generative analysis. And as you're seeing with, you know, chat GPT and, and all of that, there's this sort of explosion of interactability with these sorts of technology. And we're looking at adding a lot more interactivity into our system as well. So allowing our customers to guide analysis of the analysis that we're doing for them. So, you know, if I'm the PM in charge of calendars for my product, you know, I could maybe get directed analysis that just has to do with exactly my goal for calendars. Or if I'm the customer support lead, I might want to, my goal might be increase my CSAT score. And so we'll help you do analysis that will help you figure out what you can do to do those things. It's basically tying company goals back to customer feedback and helping you use customer feedback to achieve those company goals. What do you think is going to be your biggest challenge as you execute on that vision? Or what do you have to overcome that's going to really get in the way? Is it the category issue still? Or do you think that problem changes? So the biggest thing is going to be the category issue at first, um, which is, you know, basically convincing the market that this is something that is better than their status quo. And to be clear, their status quo is spending tens of thousands of hours on, you know, doing this reporting manually. So, you know, it's a fairly obvious one, but it is something that they hadn't even considered as a possibility. So that is still the number one thing. The next thing is actually it's getting enough of the right kind of training data and building the data sets in order to achieve that interactivity. So with any sort of AI startup, 
I believe that your biggest moat is always going to be your data moat, specifically around training data. And that's, you know, building up that corpus of sort of directed analysis training data is going to be the biggest challenge for us for there. And how do you go about building a moat like that? Is it just getting as many users onboarded to the product as possible? Or what do you do? So there's a couple of ways of doing it. If you can get user-generated content and user ratings around those things, you can get the highest rated stuff and use that as your training set. Um, So for example, like for answers that we have for our question and answer system, there's a thumbs up and a thumbs down. When you thumb something up, it actually tells us that was a good answer. And so we can use that as training data going forward. However, if you're trying to do something new that your product doesn't do yet, then you have to build up that data yourself, which usually means hiring a team of annotators to manually create a data set, which we have built out some amazing systems to pump out new training data sets very quickly over here. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Very cool. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? You can follow me on Twitter at techwraith or at twitter.com slash techwraith, or you can visit our website at askviable.com. Amazing, Dan. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share your vision. This is all super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Keep in touch. 